Hello from the Caesars Palace Hotel in Las Vegas. I'm here for an event called Elevate, which is an event sponsored by the Association for Women in Events. And today with my friend Brooke, we're doing a wellness track talking about psychological well-being, mental health, and the integration of the mind and the body. And this conversation around integration is, of course, really core to my work and to the work that we talk about at Zen Founder, this understanding that mental health, emotional well-being doesn't just live in our brains, it lives in all of our cells. And so when we are pursuing our ambitious lives as an entrepreneur, or when we are thinking about how to be great in relationships, or when we are just thinking about who we are alone in the room at night, that that is a fully embodied process. And my guest today is a software entrepreneur named Saad Juman. And Saad recently sold a company called Policy Medical. He has a long history of success as, a, as an entrepreneur in a couple of different fields. You'll hear about it in the conversation. But one of the things that we talk about in our conversation today is Saad's deep interest and practice of Qigong, an ancient Chinese healing art that um, relies on a an understanding of energy. When people talk about energy work, this is often one of the things that they're talking about. And as Saad has progressed in his success as an entrepreneur, he has also gone deep into this practice, has spent hours and hours studying, learning, training with a master teacher, and now is someone who serves others through the use of energy work. So if this all sounds a little bit woo-woo to you, I actually really recommend that you stick around and listen to the episode because I think Saad is a really interesting combination of lots of different things, that he is a software entrepreneur dude, but he also has this other side of him that has fueled and been part of his um, deep success. One of the things that we talk about that you'll hear a mention of in the episode is that Saad and I are actually doing some work collaboratively where we call them the triangle sessions, where we sit with an entrepreneur or you know someone who is seeking more wellness and wholeness in their lives. And Saad provides the energy work, physical embodiment portion of the work, and I bring some psychological intuition and care. So these sessions have been really interesting for me to participate in and, and I think have really served the people that we've worked with. So if that's something that's interesting to you, don't don't hesitate to get in touch with us. The great thing about this work is it doesn't have to be in person. We've experimented with doing our triangle sessions, the energy work and the psychological work remotely, even over Zoom. So I think this is a fascinating conversation and I'm I'm glad you're here for it. I hope that you enjoy it. Thanks so much. Welcome to the Zen Founder Podcast. This is a place where we have conversations about mental health and entrepreneurship. We have a pretty broad conceptualization of what mental health means, sometimes depression, anxiety, sometimes relationships or physical health. The goal here is to bring some calm into the crazy roller coaster of ups and downs that is life for many entrepreneurs. I'm your host, I'm Dr. Sherry Walling. I'm a clinical psychologist and an entrepreneur, married to an entrepreneur, live in the world of entrepreneurs, and I'm so pleased that you have joined us for this conversation. Osada, it's always it's always a treat when I get to talk with you. So thanks for taking 
some time out of your day to chat with me for the podcast. Oh, you're most welcome. It's really interesting to come across, you know, different people that you meet in your life where you just have like this sense of both connection and just curiosity. And I feel like I would like to just sit and ask you questions for hours on end. So I won't, I won't take hours on end, but (laughs) so one of the things that I wanted to start with is actually something that we haven't talked about a ton before, but is, is your life in the software world that you ran a software company for like what, 18 years? Almost 18 years. Yeah. 17 and a half years. My wife asked, why am I so precise about the half? And I said, I don't know. That's technically what it was. So 17 and a half years. And how did that start for you? Well, I mean, my founding story, if you will, is, is I think perhaps a little bit different than others that I've heard out there. I didn't go about trying to start a, start a software company to be a software founder. I was living, I felt a bit more of a darker life prior to founding the software company. I abandoned that life pretty much completely. And I went into a period of solitude which lasted for approximately 10 months. And in that time of solitude, I was just really searching myself to see, and the universe, to see what it is I could do to A, make amends for what I felt I was doing before, but also serve other people, serve humanity, serve a society. And what came up in that time was health, the need or the drive or the desire to impact people's health. And that was in my 20s. I left that time of solitude and... What transpired from there, I just sort of followed the cookie crumb of clues the universe left me, and it led me into founding a software company in in the healthcare sector. Can I ask a little bit more about this darker life? Yeah, yeah. I mean, somebody somebody listened to this and say, well, that that wasn't so dark. But, you know, within my, my lens, I felt it wasn't the best use of my time. So when I got into university... So university and college, I needed a way to pay tuition. So I became uh, a DJ back in those days. We had vinyl. So that's that's what I did. Um, and my entrepreneurial spirit bit me. And my DJing led me to become a, an event promoter, an event planner, because I found at the end of every night, it was the event planner that would pay me. So that was that was going well. And my events, they were all sort of university-based events. And those events got really, really large, uh, so large that we had to hire a security firm. So one night, the head of the security firm came to me and said, you know what, you could be making so much more money if you owned your own venue. So, you know, I went from DJ to event planner. So from event planner to venue, I thought, well, could it be possible? A year later, I ended up with my own, my very first venue, uh, which was essentially a lounge or a nightclub in Toronto, which is a big city. And I originally got into that business to make some money, have some fun as a young guy in his 20s. But Toronto at that time was a different city. And after a few years of running my venues, different sort of darker elements, if you will, um, that exist in the city found me and started to pressure me to utilize the businesses that I built to essentially funnel and and sell some of their goods. And that's where... I felt a big disconnect in terms of what it is I wanted, why I got into this in the first place. And, and that's why I ended up leaving. How did you know that you needed to stop? Was there a moment that said, okay, I, was it a lack of safety or was it an internal cue that said, this is not who I want to be? I think there were two factors. One was 
on the most one of the most fate, two fateful nights. One was my estranged father, who wasn't too estranged at that time. I didn't really grow up with him, but he decided to visit Toronto and he decided to pay me a visit at my venue one night. Coincidentally, that was a night that my venue was cited for an infraction and shut down on the spot with many police officers. <laughs> so, so it was a dramatic evening. It was a dramatic evening. It, it, it was one of those, it wasn't a criminal evening. It was one of those evenings where, you know, they came in, they turned on the lights and said, okay, you know, you have too many people in here, everybody out, we're going to give you a ticket and you have to apply to get your license again to open back up. Right? And then we were just sort of standing around watching it all unfold. But my father took me to my office and he didn't really say anything sophisticated, but it was the weight behind his words, I think. He just said, son, he goes, this type of life, this isn't for you. And the way he said it, like, put pointed his hands around, right? Um, I, I could tell that the type of person that I am, that life really didn't, didn't suit me. That was one incident. And then shortly after that, something semi-dramatic happened where it was an evening where younger boy, a little bit younger than I was at that time, was trying to get my attention. I waved him over to me and he came over to me and he wasn't in his right mind. He was intoxicated and, and maybe other things. And, and he said, Hey man, do you, do you remember who I am? And I looked in his eyes and then like everything stopped for a few seconds, but it felt like a long, long time. When I realized I knew this kid, I knew this guy, he was a kid. I used to teach basketball to, I was a basketball coach a long, long time ago in this community center because when I was 13, I ran this really large basketball league and I did it because I wanted to give back and help kids learn the game of basketball. And he said, he's like, Hey man, we all look up to you. We looked up to you before we look up to you now. And then he just left, but that left me with a really not really good feeling because he used to look up to me for something I felt, which was positive, which was teaching him basketball. And now he looked up to me because he felt I was living this like Tony Montana type of lifestyle. It sounds like it was these two experiences that just sort of brought you to a place of, of incongruence or recognizing that who you wanted to be in a line with who you were and how people saw you. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I'm curious though, you know, as a, as a young man in your mid late twenties at this point, why 10 months of solitude was something that you went toward because you know most people don't really you know solitude is not on the table for them (laughs) even if it's even if they need a big reset or a new direction you know they might see a therapist or or do something but 10 months of solitude is that's a big endeavor especially as a younger person how did you how did you end up taking that path you know what it was it was probably in retrospect part of my typical strategic planning, which was no planning. <laughs> I had no money at that point. So, you know, my, my fancy cars and fancy condo and everything else that I had that came from the nightclubs quickly went away. And I had to move back home with my mother. And it was there that I decided, you know what, maybe it's time to kind of go back to the origins. So that basketball league that I mentioned to you, it used to be run out of a mosque in Toronto, which was one of the first mosques that, that was ever built, and it was built by my grandfather. So I ended up going back to that mosque, and I would wait until the mosque cleared out, and I would go. I went to the caretaker my very first night because he knew me. I grew up in that place, and I said, "Hey, do you mind if I just stay here overnight while you know after you close up?" 
And when you come back in the morning for the morning prayers, I'm going to leave before you guys even pray. And he let me. And I just sat there overnight, just sitting there, right? And, and if anybody listening to this, if you've never been to a mosque, you know, there's, it's pretty simple. It's just one big, huge, open carpeted area, right? So I just sat there in the darkness, in silence, asking. I would, I would actually say this kind of like invocation from my heart. And I, I remember it. I would, say, I would say, please give me a second chance and show me the path of excellence I'm supposed to take to help people. Like, I don't know where I came up with that thing, but I just kept on sort of repeating it in my heart. That became your prayer. Yeah. And then I went back the following night and the following night, and it amounted to 10 months of sort of nocturnal solitude. Did you have a sense of praying to God? Uh, that, that was always my, my paradigm growing up. So it was natural for me to default back to that. And it is my context now for just anybody listening to this. But yeah, it was, I was, I felt like I was praying to God. I was asking God for a second chance to make amends and to show me some kind of purpose in, in life, because surely there must be something more than, than making a bunch of money. And you had this sort of sense that health was the thing that you were being called to or that you were drawn to. And take me from that realization to software. Well, it was that month three in that 10 months that the idea or the feeling or the intuition of health started coming into me. And I know I'm going a little bit esoteric and metaphysical here, but it was really the same, the same heart that was making that little prayer. It started to receive this consistent message of, well, you want a second chance? Then make it in health. And that's all I knew. I, I kind of rode that message for another seven months. And then after that, I left. I didn't continue with the solitude. And I was just completely open to any opportunities that led themselves to health. So it could have been, you know, I could have been a nutritionist or I could have decided, hey, I want to become a doctor. It could have been anything. But then I, I, was, I was always in software. So that was sort of the paradoxical thing with my life. You know, by, uh, historically, by night, there were the nightclubs. But by day, a lot of times I would be working for software startups because I enjoyed technology at that time uh, in a sales capacity. So shortly after the time in solitude, I got a call saying that, hey, you know what, there is this opportunity for a sales position at this company in Toronto. And, you know, they sell a healthcare solution. Uh, we're not quite sure what it is, but do you want to go for an interview? And I told the recruiter, I said, done, I'm there, sign me up. And I went and I started working at that particular company and it was only after a few months that I realized that that company wasn't really in the business of making a great product to help people. They were in the business of raising subsequent rounds of funding from their investors. And I was one of the guys in charge of selling. And whenever I would try to sell the product that they had, it was very difficult to sell. And whenever we would sell it, our engineering team would come to me and say, hey, you know, this is really difficult. And I'd say, what's so difficult about it? They say, the new customers, they don't want what we're selling. They want this other thing. And I said, you know, that's funny because when I was trying to sell it, they were kind of indicating they, they were wondering if the product did this other thing. And that's when I had this, the aha moment of, oh, maybe there's another product idea here. I didn't think about starting the company. At that time, I went to the CEO of that particular company and I told him, hey, perhaps you should just stop building X and start building Y. He said, no, just go back to your cubicle and sell. And the next day I took the lead engineer out for lunch because I'm not an engineer. And I said, you know, I think we should quit. 
And he said, why? He was really afraid. He said, I don't even know how to quit. I've never written a a resignation letter. And I said, I got you, man. I got you. So the following day, I came back to work with a resignation letter, identical, except for our our names. And I gave it to him. I'm like, (laughs) so I said, here. I'm like, I'm going to resign in the morning. You resign in the afternoon. He said, what? I don't know if I'm ready for this. He said, where will we work? And I said, I got you. I said, I got an office space already, 24 by 7 access, catering. There's a gym fitness facility. Everything's in there. He said, where is this place? I said, it's my mom's basement. She will cook for us. <laughs> my old weight bench is there. Everything is there. And, uh, and that's, that's how it started. Sorry, I'm just I'm laughing a little bit at you, like, hustling this poor guy. Did it turn out all right for him? Yeah, no, he was, he was my co-founder. Yeah. And, and, you know, where, where I'm originally from in Toronto, it's not a, it's not a fancy place. Some people call it the hood, you know? So when he showed up at the, at the neighborhood, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't Silicon Valley or Silicon Alley. There weren't, there weren't scooters in the office and uh, unlimited cereal snacks. No, but my mom was there. Right. And uh, she was ready to cook and she sheltered us. Hmm. She took good care of you. So you built this thing, the thing that the organizations really wanted and needed. And eventually it sounds like it grew quite large and was used what by over like 3000 hospitals at some point. Yep. It, it was the, the original plan was to sell it to Canadian hospitals because we're, I'm here in Canada, but that backfired instantly because it was very difficult to sell to Canadian hospitals. But right around that time, Google had started their AdWords product and I started to play around with it and us hospitals found us really quickly. And that's when I realized, ah, the U.S. model of healthcare meshes really well with this new product idea. And in those days, I would be in the basement selling. And my co-founder, Josh, he would be coding. And it was one of those relationships where I'd be doing demos with stuff that we weren't fully ready to ship, telling everybody, yes, we have it, and get off the phone. And I'd say, Josh, now build it. So it was one of those. Go do this thing, Josh. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, go do this thing, Josh. And then we, we, got, we got up and running, just really, really humble beginnings, completely bootstrapped, no investors. And by the end of it, we had over 3,000 hospitals. We had, we had many other healthcare-related customers as well, like long-term care facilities and home healthcare agencies and hospices. But hospitals, were that, that was our main sort of bread and butter. And then how did you know it was time to sell? Because you ran the company for quite a long time, 18 years. I mean, why not just keep going? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know what, it, it, I, a lot of, so many things happened along the way. Along the way, Josh and I parted ways. I bought him out. After he left and it was just me, I ended up wanting to really make a bigger impact than what him and I were doing. We had built it up to a really small company that was very much sort of a lifestyle company that was providing for him and I. And we ran it really simply. You know, we would, checks would come in from the hospitals. We would split it in the bank and split it 50-50. And that was, that was the extent of our, our planning. But after I bought him out, I really wanted to scale and grow it quite a bit. But we were on the verge of bankruptcy at that particular time. And this was about six years before my exit. So I had to really do an internal gut check to, to ask myself, do I still want to do this thing? And that time in solitude came back to me, that sort of mission of, no, no, you're not done yet. Your goal was to impact people's health. Right. And my goal was actually to impact a million people's health on a daily basis. That, that's I just had that metric in my head. Did you? I did. I decided that I needed to continue. But it was really difficult because 
that's the story within sort of U.S. healthcare and the hospital world that people know of the relaunch. A lot of people think the company started six years before I sold it. But really, I relaunched the whole company, restarted it from scratch. And when I say relaunch, everything, rebuilding the product all over again. The only thing we had was really, it wasn't really a gift. It was a, more like an anchor of having a few clients that we still had to appease and, and make happy. And so what led to you feeling ready to sell? I wasn't having fun, as much fun anymore with, with the business. I knew I wanted to leave even at that time when I was relaunching the company. And it's so interesting because these days when I have conversations with certain entrepreneurs, it's one of those, one of those difficult decisions. Back then it was, do I continue to try to fulfill this mission? And perhaps it works, perhaps it doesn't work. And then on the more practical side, I had to ask myself, once I started to pick up a little bit of traction from the relaunch, I started to see that it was working, right? It was, okay, a year into the relaunch, okay, the product is done, customers like it, this is good, but I'm still not having as much fun as I want and I really want to leave the business. That's where I discovered my willpower and I really had to will myself to go through the entire reinvention stage of the business to hopefully get it to a point where I could benefit from it in a pretty good outcome. And I was thinking about, not just about myself, I was thinking about my children, I was thinking about my wife, about our family unit in general what this could mean for them. It's a very different language than I feel like I often hear, maybe not founders use, but people who are talking about their software journey or their, their business journey in general. You know, there's often language of, of passion and momentum. And I feel like willpower is really a huge driver of success, but one that's perhaps less celebrated or less discussed in some ways. Because it sounds like there were six years where you really were forcing yourself to do something that you believed would have great benefit in the end, but wasn't particularly joyful while you were doing it. You're right. It was, you know, and the language I'm using might not be the, the sexiest of languages, but I mean, it's, in my experience, it's real, like that willing yourself to get it done. And now that I'm on the flip side of it, I'm so glad that I did it. I'm so glad that I actually did it. Were you unhappy during that time? Did it feel forceful? Like, did you dread going to work? What was your kind of a mental state during six years of willpower? So I have the hindsight of a, a year and a half out of the business, right? With a bit more clarity. If you asked me just when I sold it, you know, a month afterwards, I would say, no, you know what? It was a pretty balanced life. It was great. And I would, I would paint a very positive picture. But now that things have settled a little bit, I would say that, a lot of it was forced in that final push. A lot of it wasn't the most joyful. I wasn't always happy being at the company and at the business. And it was not as balanced in terms of work, the life-work balance that I thought it was. But even with all of the ugliness, I'm still so happy that I did it. Sure. You sacrificed some joy, some lightness for the, the outcome in the end. Yeah, and it's not just the money. It's to see the chapter complete. Like I know that the chapter is now closed for me, even though the company lives on and continues to grow, but my part of it is done. In a way, it sounds like you fulfilled to completion that sense of calling that you heard in the middle of the night in the mosque when you were in your 20s, that that, that had to come full circle. Yes, yes, I felt so. So in the midst of this journey with your company, 
you were also developing yourself to be a, a Qui Gong practitioner. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Yeah, some people pronounce it that way, Qi Gong, or, or what's popular in the West is Qi Gong as well. Qi Gong. Okay. So you had this parallel thing that you spent years studying, practicing, working on. How did that enter your life? And actually, will you describe what it is? So Qigong is a, one of, of many authentic modalities of, I guess, what's known in the West as energy work. So it's a way of working on the body in terms of body work to improve injuries. So those injuries could be physical, emotional, or, or psychological. And how did you come across this practice? Originally, the original acute thing that got me to come across it was, you know, probably like many of us, we all live many parallel little lives at the same time. So one thread that was pretty consistent throughout my life was, was I was always and still am a martial artist. And at one point, I was competing very, very heavily in, in many different circuits. When my competing years were ending, when I could no longer devote, you know, six to eight hours a day of training, I was left with quite a few injuries, uh, the worst of which was one in my hip. It's a tear in my, in my hip hole, a labral tear. And I went to a hospital in Toronto. And after meeting with the surgeon, you know, I remember the, I remember the visit because he kept on running me through these physical tests and I didn't have pain. And then he said, well, when does it hurt? And I said, when I do an inside out axe kick, which is like you lift your leg up really high, almost behind your head and drop it down like an axe. And he said, but you don't compete anymore. So do you think you can get by regular life without doing an inside out axe kick? And as an athlete, like you don't think about not doing the techniques that you're supposed to do. And I said, I never thought about it that way, but yeah, you know what? I won't do it. And he said, leave it for a year, come back in a year. And if there's no pain, let's just monitor it for a long time because the tear will never go away. Apparently these tears don't go away. And in that year, that's when I decided to explore alternative ways of healing that hip injury. I'm a very skeptical person. I need knowledge. I need facts to prove things to me, especially at that time. And I started to research to find an authentic modality that could work. And that led me to either yoga or Qigong, because those seem to be two really authentic paths. And, and Qigong is, is sort of the root of everything traditional Chinese medicine, herbs, acupuncture, acupressure, etc. cetera. Uh, so then when I, once I found the modality, then it was a task for me to find the right teacher. Uh, because when I started to look for a teacher, I found that there were some not so good teachers, people that knew a little bit, some people that may have been charlatans. And then I found that the Chinese government, they authenticate different lineages, a, a finite number of lineages of families that teach this. So I found, I found a teacher as close as possible to me. And I guess this comes from my martial arts upbringing, even though I went to formal university and everything else. But usually when I really want to learn something... I will go to the best teacher I can find and I will ask her or him if I could learn at their feet, if they can teach me. And that's how I started to learn Qigong. So he started to teach me how to heal myself originally. And that took me a year to heal my hip. I went back to that hospital. They were amazed that the tear was completely gone. But really all they told me was, well, whatever you're doing, just keep it up. And they sent me on my way. And I went back to my teacher and, and I said, you know what, it worked. And I said, can you teach me how to heal other people now? 
because I had, you know, I was, I knew we'd have a family and things like that. And my original intention was I wanted to use energy work to perhaps support the healing over the years of my family. What does Qigong look like? Like, how do you know that one is doing it? How do you do it? Well, physically, if one were to look at someone doing Qigong, it looks very similar to something like Tai Chi, right? So Tai Chi, I think, might be something that many people are familiar with, right? If you're if you look at your local park, you might see Tai Chi pr- practitioners under a tree doing Tai Chi. But there's an inner visualization and work that's going on while you're doing Qigong to tap into the flow of energy. And, and that flow of energy, really from a scientific perspective, is blood flow. So optically, you, it looks like you're doing very slow, gentle, moving meditation. But, but what you're doing is you're generating and pooling and increasing your ability to tap into energy, universal energy. So you're channeling energy from around, from nature, into your body to use it to heal yourself. Or in my case, after a long time of training, to be able to project it out and heal other people. Is there a sensation that you're experiencing while you are on the receiving end of that kind of energy healing? Yes, yes. Uh, Most people... Will, will say that they're, and it's different for everybody slightly, but the more consistent feelings that people have, it might be heat, there may be tingling, a lightness overall, uh, but overall people usually end up becoming completely, completely relaxed. So for example, today, earlier today, I had an athlete come by and, and they needed energy healing for an injury. And this particular athlete just they fell asleep on the massage table and just completely asleep, right? And, uh, and this person is used to it, but usually people wake up apologizing for, for dozing off or falling asleep or things like that. But really, they, should, they don't need to apologize because that tingling, that, those sensations that they're feeling is taking them closer to their true normal state, not the sort of the frenetic state that the modern society promotes in us, but a true normal relaxed state and they're able to completely relax and receive that particular healing. And in this particular athlete's situation, because of their injury, when they're done, the area where th- that was actually in pain, which is the left shoulder, uh, when we were done, that particular left shoulder to that athlete feels very light. The range of motion starts moving a lot more. And really that's because through the Qigong practice and energy healing practice, we were able to move the blood flow and send it towards that particular area to speed up the healing. So besides being able to heal injuries in, in others and, and within yourself, how, how does your practice of Qigong shape you as an entrepreneur? Like how is that integrated into your business life? It, it informed it quite a bit because the Qigong journey allowed me to tap into something that was just a word before, which was intuition. Before I'd hear about intuition, and probably like anybody else, I would have flashes of intuition. But through an energy practice, it allowed me to become acquainted with that well where intuition comes from. And then, you know, over the years, different things, different sort of strange things started happening as my training progressed that I couldn't explain. Uh, For example, from a business perspective, I would often sit with my sales team and we would go through our CRM, our customer relationship management tool. So we're there, we're analyzing the pipeline through a report in Salesforce. That that was what we had used. And I would tell the sales team, 
and let's say it was Q2 of a particular year, second quarter. I say, you know what? I said Q4 of next year. I said uh, these I, these deals are going to close, and I'd pick some really large potential deals, and they would say, but they haven't even contacted us yet. I said, I know. I just I just got a feeling that we're going to have those customers next year, those ones, and those things would end up happening. And at first, I thought, oh, maybe it's a lucky guess. But then, as I started to listen to my inner voice more and more, and a lot of that has to do with me having my eyes closed for so many hours of the day, usually tapping into these inner practices, I'm able to hear that voice telling me things. And it would show up from an entrepreneurial perspective, not just in the pipeline for sales, but hiring, sometimes having to transition people out because they're not a good fit on the team, almost almost anything. I mean, there was even a time where we were growing quite a bit and I had to decide if I wanted to part with equity. And remember, when we started, it was simple. It was Josh and I, co-founders together. And then when he left that, 100% of the company. And then there was a time where a major investor from Silicon Valley, it was time for that person to come in. And I had to sit with, do I give this person equity? Do I not? How much equity do I give? And my intuition led me to this exercise that... It was quite amazing what happened. I, I literally sat in a dark room for two hours by myself, closed my eyes, and I tried to become the other person. And I tried to become them, and I tried to feel what it is they would ask me for in terms of equity. And you know what? When, we, when myself and that individual ended up having the conversation, he asked me for a specific amount of equity. And I think he felt like anything. He would throw something out, and I would come back. But it was the number that I had... I had sort of received and I just said, okay. And that was it. We were done. Like you'd already thought about it. You'd already sat with it and held the number. Yep. You understood it, where it came from. Yep. And I, I knew it was fair instead of going back and forth or think, Ooh, wait, wait, that's the number that came up in my, this exercise I did. Well, let me see if I can get him for less. I thought, no, this is, this is the right number, right? This is what came to me. This is what he's asking for. Let's do this. I don't know if I can even fully express how rare it is to hear entrepreneurs really valuing, cultivating, honoring intuition. Because I, I feel like it's, it's, you know, it's a little mystical. It's a little feminine. It's a little like hard to get your, your numerical engineering mind around. But those people who do give themselves the freedom to explore and deepen their intuitive capacity. I, I sense in them this sense of, of groundedness and calm that feels really different. I, I would agree. I, I, feel, I feel these days, because I get to have a lot of conversations with other entrepreneurs I may be mentoring or in some other capacity, and I will say things to them. And it, comes from, it really comes from, it's, it's not like I'm the wisest person on the mountain, my ideas come from the fact that I made so many mistakes in my entrepreneur in that 17 and a half year journey. So many that I now I, and I'm lucky to live through that fire, but now I kind of look at it differently. So one thing in the line of intuition that we're talking about that I've been telling entrepreneurs recently is, is I don't think entrepreneurs are misunderstood by everyone around them because that's a common thing I hear entrepreneurs say we're unique. People don't understand us. They're the nine to fivers and they're the entrepreneurs. But I say, no, I actually think it's a little bit different. I think entrepreneurs misunderstand themselves. And people would ask me, well, how, how so? 
And I actually think that entrepreneurs are not entrepreneurs. I think they're creatives. I think they are, are artists. And I think that the work, the real work, is actually the tunneling inside in a gentle and consistent way inside yourself, going into, I guess you can call it a creative well. And that's the work. And then you just detach. And whatever comes up out of that well just comes out of the well. For me, is I left the nightclub world and I went inside the creative well without knowing what it was. And what came out was a 17.5-year software journey. And now, since I sold that company, I've, now that I got that lesson, I went back inside and things have slowly started to come out as well. This inside-out model of doing a business. It's both like rat, a radical departure, but also not at all a radical departure from how successful businesses come to be. I think it's a different way of telling the story. But when you really look at founders who are happy and satisfied in businesses that are thriving, I think there's almost always an inside out story. Yes. They they may not want to admit it or realize it. It's not often the story people tell. Yeah. (laughs) Why are we so reticent about being comfortable in our inner world? You know, I, I feel like this one I should comment based on my gender. I feel like for for men and especially in entrepreneurs, because unfortunately, I think uh, the entrepreneurial community is, is too much infused with the masculine energy. But I think men, it's viewed as almost like a sign of weakness going from the inside out and cultivating that, that, inner, that inner landscape. But I actually think that people take their businesses way, way too seriously. I actually stopped taking my business as serious when I realized a fundamental mistake I was making along the way. I was attaching my business identity to my personal identity. And whenever the business was thriving, I felt like a king. And whenever it was not doing so well, I felt like a complete failure. And I remember I found myself in this place called Norman, Oklahoma. I've been to more places in the United States than most Americans. Like wherever there's a hospital, I've been. So I was in, I was in Norman, Oklahoma in this little holiday in, I think. And then I was so stressed out with the whole relaunch and restart of the business. So this is like, this is just a few, several years before the exit. And the thought came to me, what if I just ended it all? When I say it, I meant everything. It just ended, it's just too much stress. And I sat with that for a few minutes and I thought, whoa, what just happened there? And I realized that I was meshing and marrying this business to my actual identity. And it was a bit of an eye-opener for me, and it's a constant, ongoing struggle for me, constantly. Even with my work now as a coach or whatever, I always have to like remind myself, that's not me. It's just a thing I do. So that, that, was, that was extra fuel for me to continue to go back inside and, and do some more work. And now you, you spend most of your time, or your, your professional time, however you designate between personal and professional, but you spend most of your professional time inviting entrepreneurs into an inner process through you know, the business coaching that you do, and then your Qigong practice. Yes, I do. I, now, I don't lead with the Qigong, usually. I'll lead with business, because going back to the theme we were talking about, there's still resistance to leading the world of entrepreneurial development and improvement from the inside out. So I almost have to go with the outside first, 
And then when it's time, jump to the inside. But if I had my way, I'd just go to the inside right away. Right. Skip all the other stuff. <laughs> yeah. 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 And we have similar approaches to work in, in that way where there's this kind of gentle coaxing out a conversation that is focused on the inner world. Yes. Not always easy and often lots of resistance as we all have our own reasons for resistance. Yes. And it's, you know, it is where we live with this entrepreneur world because, you know, some of the platforms that are opening up for me these days, it's not lost on me that what I'm sharing, I was also sharing a little bit, even though more privately before my quote unquote exit from, from my business. But in the entrepreneur and business world, that exit is now a credibility indicator for that world. Right? Like, oh, this person has achieved this mm. and they have this inner practice. Of- we'll listen to what they have to say. Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly right. Well, one of the things that has been, you know, a tremendous source of, I don't even know what word to use exactly, but, but joy and curiosity has been the ability to sit with you while you do your energy practice and then to also offer some psychological intuition. So we've experimented a little bit with what we're, we've called the triangle sessions where there's an, an energy work component and a psychological work component that's really centered around an entrepreneur's business and their life. Those have been absolutely, from my perspective, and I'm speaking here almost as a student, it's been wonderful being in those rooms uh, with, with you because it's interesting, the combination, because somebody like me with what we're calling energy work, the energy work is almost like a catalyst that promotes opening in a way. And really for somebody like me, that's what I can do. But Sherry, with somebody with your modality, you're now able to give language and help process and integrate things that will come up from an entrepreneur because of, because of energy work. Yeah, I feel like the energy work really, really unlocks and opens the doors to the inner world. And then some of the psychological work that I've been practicing and cultivating, you know, helps people get comfortable there, right? Like get out some throw pillows and hang up some art so they can, they can visit, they can be there in those inner spaces. Whereas to be honest, in the past, when I, when I would do something, when I would share with people, they would say, hey, well, you know, what did you, what did you see? What did you sense? What's your intuition when you were working energetically with me? And I would share, but I wouldn't have a way for them to continue the journey because that's not my, that's not my core competency. But now with, with sort of the triangle sessions, they're now able to, to unpack it. Saad, I've been in the room with you when you've done this energy work and you know, I'm convinced that it works both from observing and the anecdotal data, but could you just talk a little bit about the science of what is happening with energy work? I think energy work just sounds really like vague and heebie-jeebie and, you know, are there crystals involved? Is like, is there chanting? Like, I think that term is so broad that it can get lost in people's assumptions about what it means. Yeah, great, great question. I mean, typically, if you're working with an experienced energy worker there usually isn't crystals or chanting involved. It is without touch. So usually there's no, there's no physical touch to the person. It's the energy healer or worker sending energy to you into your body. Physically what they're doing is they are helping to direct the blood flow 
to the particular area that needs it. So from a physical, athletic, or physical injury perspective, you know, let's say it was an ankle that was uh, sprained, they would be sending energy, also known as blood flow, to that ankle to help it heal faster. Now, you as a person receiving that, what you would probably feel is tingling, heat, you might see the color of the skin changing, it might becoming, become red, and the physical sensation you'll feel afterwards is that of lightness. You know, the injury will become very, very light, right? It's almost like uh, somebody injected some ibuprofen straight into the spot. So that's, that's physically what you're actually feeling. Now, if they're helping with a psychological energetic block, then you may start feeling, let's say it's in the, in the context of talk therapy, the person receiving it may start feeling the urge to just start opening up more from their heart center, if you will, uh, as opposed to sort of formulating through their mind exactly what to say in the session. They would just start intuitively just speaking, even if it's words, sort of free flow. Think of you know free flow journaling, how it just flows. This is almost free flow speaking. And that's because there's more more blood flow in certain parts of the body that might kind of unlock defenses or decrease our need to feel like we have to censor and filter. Yes, yes. And you're promoting us, I'm promoting a safer feeling for the person. So physically what I'm doing, for example, in our triangle sessions is I'm flooding their physical heart with more blood flow and almost wrapping the heart with this energetic bubble, this energy bubble, which allows the person to feel just Ah, safe and not judged, and then they just start they just start flowing as you will, not even speaking but but flowing and one of the things that I've so enjoyed too about this integrative process is that you know often we see emotional pain or emotional injury sort of take form in one spot in the body, I mean like shoulders and neck or this really common place for people to experience pain or heaviness when they feel like they're emotionally carrying something or someone feeling tightness in their chest or kind of a blockage in their throat when it feels like they're they're pressing down or hampering their truth or something that they need to speak but feel afraid to speak. So I think one of the things that I I love about this work is that that deep integration of the body and the places in which there is either pain or discomfort or the sense of stuckness that takes place. Like maybe we can identify, no, my life is going fine, but man, my shoulders and head really hurt. And sometimes the body is that entry point into like we've talked about that, that deeper inner space which is my, in my training as a psychotherapist, like we don't have a lot of language or method to work in the order of body before interior psychology. It's in my training as a yoga teacher that I have a little bit more of a, of a sense of how to do that. But I think Qigong and, and energy work practices offer such a great set of tools that can help with inner emotional healing that, that most trained mental health professionals just don't have the training to do that, that sort of body first method. Yes, I'd, I'd agree with you. A lot of times, I mean, I, I was telling somebody this week that I don't really believe in physical only injuries. Most physical injuries are connected to emotions at very minimal. 
And it's funny to hear you say that because I would almost say I, the opposite is true for me in the sense that I don't, I don't know that I fully believe that people can receive a psychological injury that doesn't land somewhere in their bodies. That any kind of healing of pain, whether it's you know a parent's divorce when we were seven, it lands in our body somehow. And so a full healing experience even from a talk therapy psychologist perspective, I think has to include the body in some way. That's, that's beautiful to hear that perspective. Well, it is such a pleasure to, you know, to get to talk with you more about, you know, I feel like we've talked so much about body, soul, mind, energy stuff that I didn't even, I didn't know so much about your journey as an entrepreneur. But the thing that I'm so struck with is that your deep success began in that, you know, the mosque in the middle of the night, these places of quiet solitude where probably then you were really learning to listen to and hear your own intuition. And that's what led you down this path that, you know, has provided so much benefit for those 1 million people whose health you impacted, but also benefit for you and your family and your community. You know, the origin point, you know, those, I guess for lots of us, those times seem so difficult, but there are oftentimes the most beautiful times we, we sort of reminisce about. Yeah. Times when we're opening ourselves up to who we're becoming. Yes. Yes. Well, um, if you're hearing this and are curious about knowing more about Saad and his work, how would you like people to get in touch with you if they're curious about your work, either as a coach or as an energy worker, or perhaps even a triangle session combining forces, you and I? Yeah. Well, you know what? I've, I've become a little less ancient these days. Historically, I wouldn't exist anywhere. But I do have a website, finally, where people can, uh, can find me, which is my name, sawjuman.io. And that's about it. That's where I post podcast interviews, ideas, writings. And I'm going to probably create a little bit of a section there to start posting how to learn more about adopting an energy practice. Beautiful. Well, thanks so much for the time this afternoon, Saad. You're most welcome. This has been a blast talking to you. I enjoyed it a lot. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode of the podcast. In the meantime, feel free to check out zenfounder.com for lots of resources about the kinds of conversations that we have on the podcast. You can get information about working with me, about maybe joining a Zen tribe. It's sort of like a mental health boot camp for entrepreneurs. We also have lots of content on our blog, links to resources in our courses and books for sale. So check us out there and we hope to provide anything and everything that you might need to make the entrepreneurial life a little bit easier.